everyone needs encouragement. I've heard it said that every person wears an invisible sign that says, make me feel important. You ever heard that before? I think most of the time people have one that also says, I need encouragement. I know that I was wearing one this week. It was a rough week for me in many ways. In fact, I had uh, three people in my life for which that sign was not invisible because they knew me well enough to say, what's wrong with you? (laughs) One person I just texted and said, hey, I need to hang out because everybody needs encouragement. And you never know what's going on in somebody's life that could result in their heightened need for encouragement. And whatever it is, it could come on suddenly. Jesus' disciples were having a, a good time. They were having a, a big meal, a, a good meal, together with their teacher, when all of a sudden there's talk of betrayal and denial, and worst of all, Jesus' departure. And they go from having the best time at the best meal to having the worst meal ever just like that. It's no wonder that Jesus says to them in John chapter 14, verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. I'm sure one of them was thinking, well, I wasn't troubled before the meal, but now I am, so thanks a lot, Jesus. <laughs> Things were going great, and then all of a sudden you start this betrayal talk, you know, and saying that you're going to leave and that Peter's going to deny you. I mean, what, what are you talking about here? And Jesus wasn't trying to tell them all that stuff because he wanted them to have troubles. He was just telling the truth. He was trying to prepare them for what was coming. And he did want to reassure them that they can have untroubled hearts. It's possible because like we talked about last week, Jesus was going to prepare a place for them. And then he's going to take us to be with him. And Thomas asked the question, where are you going? And Jesus responded to the Father. I am the way to the Father. And then Philip jumps in and he says, well, show us the Father. And that sets off the passage that we have today, which is kind of like part two of Jesus' telling his disciples, do not let your hearts be troubled. And if you summarize this section of Scripture, into, if I was to summarize it into one statement, I would say belief in Jesus is the link to the Father and the link to greater works which will glorify the Father and the Son. Belief in Jesus is the link to the Father and it's the link to greater works which will glorify the Father and the Son. So there's really two main parts to the sermon today. The first part is how Jesus represents the Father to the disciples, and the second part is is that the disciples represent Jesus to the world. So let's start with verse 7 and 8 in your Bibles here. Jesus has just said to his disciples that they do know the Father and have seen him, and Philip comes back in verse 8 and says, well, just show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Which is funny, it appears that Philip and the other disciples they still haven't yet understood the magnitude of who Jesus is. They understood what Jesus was saying, that he um, was the way to the Father, but they didn't really fully grasp what this meant. It's often the case that we don't realize the gift that we have in other people until they're no longer with us. Coming off of the funeral from our, of our dear sister Janet made me realize this again. Funerals are sad because we come face to face with the loss of a person that we loved and we know that we will miss that person. But a lot of times we often realize that there were things left unsaid or things left undone. And so 
I've seen funerals bring a lot of regret to people's minds. We wish we would have spent more time with the person we loved or told them certain things. And funerals are often you know, important because they have a way of sobering us to the realities of life. And I see family members showing extreme emotions and affections toward one another at funerals that I don't see at other times. And I think that's a really good, good thing. I, I had a, an old pastor give a young pastor advice one time, and they said, walk to a wedding, but run to a funeral. Because not only are people willing to show more emotion and say important things like, I love you, at a funeral than at a wedding, but people are also willing to hear the truth of the gospel because their hearts are softened to the things that really matter. In this situation, the disciples were looking for something else still. Maybe Philip thought that Jesus was going to reveal the Father in some earth-shattering way. In the Old Testament, God did reveal himself rarely. Theologians call this a theophany whenever God would reveal himself. Maybe in their minds, the disciples' minds, when Philip asked that question, he was thinking about Moses. Remember Moses, he asked to see Jesus, he asked to see God, Yahweh, face to face, and The Lord said, no one can see my face and live, but I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will pass by and you can see my back. Giving him a glimpse of the glory of God. Or in Exodus 24, we read that Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders went up and they saw the God of Israel. Or maybe they were thinking of Isaiah chapter 6, that famous passage where in the year King Uzziah died, Isaiah said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple with glory. And you can read Isaiah 6 of his vision of the throne room of God. Maybe when Philip asked Jesus if Jesus would reveal the Father, he had something like this in mind. The disciples, they were looking for something more in their minds, not realizing that what they had was right there in front of their faces was shocking. If they had only realized that they right there that they had God in the flesh, they wouldn't have been asking those questions. You know, later on, I think they did understand after the resurrection, after the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, which we'll get into in a few weeks, because in John chapter 1, if you remember, John, one of the disciples sitting around the table there, he said that the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then... He says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So later on, I think the disciples did get it. Hey, this is, Jesus is the word. And he became flesh and he made his dwelling among us. He lived among us and he revealed the glory of God. So with the help of the Holy Spirit, they ended up getting it. But right now they're just kind of confused and they want to make it, they want it to make sense right now. And Jesus, he tries to make it make sense. Look look in verse 9. In verse 9, Jesus asked a question that basically comes with a hint of sadness. He says to them, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know, Philip? He asked how they don't understand with all the teaching, with everything that they've been through, why are you still asking for something more when I'm right here with you? With all the teaching, all the signs, some of them still struggled with belief. And this shows us that a person can hear Bible teaching, good Bible teaching, and still not really grasp the gospel message. A person could have a close friend or relative who walks in step with the Spirit and still not truly experience rebirth. A person can be in church their whole lives and not be born again. 
For me, this means that we should never assume that someone is a true believer, a born-again, regenerate person. If a person has no spiritual fruit, or if a person still talks about their need to practice religion perfectly, or if a person still thinks that it's their good works that's going to get them into heaven, then those are signs that they, the person is not a true believer. I'm always saddened when I see somebody who professes to be a Christian, but they just constantly struggle with receiving God's grace. Or they always say, you know, if I say, are you a Christian? They say, well, I'm trying really hard. Because it's not about trying hard, it's about receiving God's gift of grace. But there's hope in this exchange as well, because these disciples, they end up getting it eventually. So even though we might not assume a person is a Christian, we should not discount the work of God's grace in somebody's life. I think it's still really good that these disciples are still with Jesus, just like I think it's still really good if somebody goes to church. You know what I mean? And, and it's still really good that God is, there's evidences of God's grace in so many people's lives. If they would look and see the amazing things that God has already done in their lives and how sometimes God can keep us from wrecking our lives in sin. And, and it is possible to, you know, be in church your whole life. I, I have a friend who even told me one time, he graduated the degree, he went to seminary, he got a job as a youth pastor, and then later on told me that he didn't think he was truly born again. <laughs> that it was later on, him studying the word, that then he realized that, okay, this, I was missing it for a long time. So you should not take it for granted. So there's hope for anyone to come to Christ, and Jesus Christ, is, he is the living manifestation of the Father. So Jesus asked the question in verses 9 and 10. He says, how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Asking it this way. So he's, he's presupposing that they understand what he is saying. That he's saying, like, I'm in the Father. The Father is in me. And there's three ways that he's explaining right here in these three verses of how it shows that there is a union between the Son and the Father. First of all, because of his character. In, in verse 10, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. So this is something that Jesus has already said, and he will continue to stress to his disciples that Jesus has the same nature as the Father. So to see the Father, you look at Jesus. To hear from Jesus is to hear from the Father. To be with Jesus is to be with the Father. So everything that is the Father is Jesus as well. He, Jesus is God in the flesh. God with skin on is how I like to describe it. So because of his character, and secondly, because his words are the Father's words. Verse 10, he says, the words I say to you are not my own. And he's already said this twice. He said this in chapter 7. He said this in chapter 12. He basically has already said, look, I'm only speaking the words that my Father gives me to speak. I'm speaking the Father's words. So, and he's like the mouthpiece of heaven. And thirdly, we can believe in the unity of the Father and the Son because of the miracles, the signs that we have already seen John talk about, these various signs. In verse 11, he says, The Father living in me, doing the work. He says, Believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. In John 5, 36, it says, For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he says, I'm doing these works so that you will believe that this is the Father doing the works. What Jesus is talking about here in verses 10 through 11 
is a glimpse into what the Christians call the doctrine of the Trinity. The fact that the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father, this is a profound, mysterious, unique reality. No other religion in the world has this kind of doctrine, this kind of teaching, and yet it's foundational to what we believe as Christians. If someone was to invent a religion like Christianity, I think they would be foolish to include something like this. How many times have you struggled to be like, how does this work? How does this make sense? And we don't fully understand it, but we read it right here in Scripture and see that it's, it's part of God's revelation of himself. Because we believe that Jesus and the Father share one divine essence, one divine nature, and they are both God, yet Jesus is not the Father, and the Father is not Jesus. They are distinct persons. But Jesus says they are in one another. That means they have a shared nature and a shared purpose and are in constant communion with one another. It, the Trinity, actually, the word is tri-unity. Tri as in three, unity as in um, together. And in fact, before that word is used in historical documents, uh, the word that theologians came up with was threeness. Actually, before it came into English as Trinity, it was the threeness of God because they were trying to think of a way to explain what the Bible, was clear teaching in the Bible. And every time we try to explain it, we end up messing it up. Like if you try to explain it with, oh, it's water, base, vapor, and, you know, um, ice. Well, that falls short because H2O can't be in all those at the same time, right? So whatever we try to explain, it always falls short. I think one of the best illustrations is the picture of a triangle with God in the middle and the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, how each one of them are God, but the Father is not the Son and not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Son, not the Father, and the Son is not the Father and not the Holy Spirit. So, like, they are all God, but they are not each other. Which, again, it is a profound mystery, and it's very hard to understand that they have one nature, but three distinct persons and it's also interesting the bible teaches that they have different roles too so the plan of salvation the plan of redemption was planned by the father it was carried out by the son and the work that the son did on the cross is applied to unbelievers by the holy spirit and then the holy spirit sometimes is called the spirit of christ in scripture so we're going to get into this more in the future because this upper room discourse, John chapters 14 through 17, Jesus talks a lot about the Holy Spirit because, um, like I said, we'll get into it later, but this is a really important. So right now he's talking about the relationship between him and the Father, saying that you know, they are all God, but they are distinct as well. And if the disciples find this hard to wrap their heads around, which of course they do and we do, Jesus said to believe in the works that you've already seen. So believe with your own eyes what you have already seen. And I, I, all I can say is, well, fair enough, right? Because Jesus is revealing it, and then we have the Holy Spirit can help us understand as well. But then Jesus goes on in verses 12 through 14 to show that in addition to Jesus being in the representation from the Father, now he basically says that the disciples are going to be his repu- representation to the world. In verse 12, it begins with that another truly, truly statement to you, or King James, verily, verily, 
or like, I'm telling you the truth. So this is, again, when you see truly, truly in the ESV, that is a point of emphasis. He says, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. So whoever, first of all, he says, believing in me. Believing is, is the action that you need to be doing. It's, an, it's not just an intellectual thing, but John's key word is believe, which is, is, is a doing thing. And Jesus says that those who believe in him will do what he does. So believing is doing what Jesus does and becoming like Jesus. If someone is not becoming like Jesus, then they're not believing as well. It's part of spiritual growth. And secondly, whoever believes in me will do the works. This means that everybody, it, you don't have to be a missionary or a pastor or an evangelist, you know. It says, whoever believes in me. And the phrase, whoever believes, you see that like four other times in the book of John as well. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. So those are all instances where people going from unbelief to belief, having eternal life, having true life, real life. And now the same phrase Jesus uses for doing the works that Jesus does. So again, this is not something you, you know, not some spiritual high you've got to attain to. But instead, this is for every believer. He says you're going to be doing works. This is normal Christianity. So does this mean that we'll do the kind of stuff that Jesus did? Like, because I'd like to walk on water. And I've never done that, you know? Is that what he's talking about here? Well, I think what he, if you look at verses 11 and 12 together here, I think they go hand in hand in this passage. So verse 11, basically he's saying that my works function to lead people to faith in me. That's why he did the works, remember? He's doing the signs so that you would believe. And then verse 12, he says, when you believe in me, I will work in you, and your works, like mine, will lead people to faith. So when he put those two verses together, verses 11 and 12, he says, believe in me and my works, and when you believe in the works that I do, it's going to lead you to faith, and whoever believes in me, you're going to do those similar works, and it's going to lead other people to faith. So I think the works that Jesus is talking about isn't necessarily the exact miracles like turning water to wine, you know, walking on water, calming the storms. I think he's saying those works were pointing to belief, having, helping other people to believe. And you're going to do the same thing. If you are a Christian, your life and the work that the Holy Spirit's doing in you and through you is going to point other people to the Lord Jesus Christ as well. So, and then, but what's really incredible too, there's another step here. Verse 12, he says, and you're going to do greater works than these you will do because I am going to the Father. So greater works. Now, this is not just more works. He, could, he would have said more works if he meant more works. But greater works, it could be, it's not even more spectacular or more supernatural because, I mean, he raised Lazarus from the grave. I mean, he, you know, multiplied the bread and turned water into wine. It's hard to top those kind of things. So he's not talking about greater works as far as more miraculous, because they were all miraculous, right? But the word greater here means greater in size or importance or degree. And I think the clue here is the word because. He says, because I am going to the Father. Jesus is going to the Father, then he is going to send the Holy Spirit. And again, this is teaching that he does 
ongoing, you know, over the next few chapters. This is the largest teaching of Jesus all at once here in the book of John. This is like a massive amount of teaching here. And he's going to tell them the Holy Spirit is going to come. He's going to not only regenerate you from spiritual death to spiritual life, but now the Holy Spirit is going to live in you. And the Holy Spirit is going to be the driving force in the expansion of the church. And the ministry of Jesus expands or through the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit. And so those works are going to grow in size and importance because now the kingdom of God is going to break forth and it's going to spread out. So there will be greater works that take place because, he says, I am going to the Father. Later on, he says, unless I go away, I cannot send the Holy Spirit to you. So it's to your advantage that I go away. And he's introducing that topic right now, saying, because I'm going to the Father, you are going to see and you are going to do greater works. And remember the works that Jesus did? It says in verse 10, um, the words that I say to you, I do, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. So the Father's doing the works through Jesus, through the words of Jesus. You see the connection here? Like, it's amazing, verse 10 there, these doing those works are coming through the words of Jesus. So God's works are accomplished as God's people communicate the truth of God through works, through words. I'll say that again because I messed it up. God's works are accomplished as God's people communicate the truth of who God is through words. We have to use words. That's the point. Gospel proclamation comes about through the use of words. We cannot tell people about the good news of Jesus Christ unless we use words. There might be more to that, right? But there certainly isn't less. So we can feed the hungry. We can care for the sick. We can take care of orphans and widows in distress. We are supposed to. We were called to do that. But if we only care for others without speaking the words that bring life, then we aren't preaching the gospel. So we need to use words to communicate the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ. So when Jesus talks about the greater works that his followers will do in comparison to the works that he has already done, it has to do with the forgiveness of sins. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news, right? And Jesus forgave people's sins when he was on earth. He forgave people's sins because he is God. And, you know, and before Jesus died on the cross, people that were forgiven were forgiven through faith, but they were forgiven through faith in the anticipation, in the hope of a Messiah that, that was going to come. Well, Jesus had not yet gone to the cross, right? Not yet been died for our sins and was raised to life yet. So what's going to happen after he rises from the grave is that now people are going to look back. Now people are going to look backward and they're going to see that Jesus died on the cross, was buried, raised, and now he sent the Holy Spirit. So now it's complete. It's finished. It's once for all. So the message that we preach will be the message not of, and the message the disciples are going to preach is, not one of a, a coming Messiah, but one that is a paid ransom, a complete payment, a finished propitiation for sins. It's all done. So the miracles are great, but the greatest miracle of all is the miracle of new birth. And so 
we get to participate in the greater works because we get to spread the good news about Jesus and see him do that work. And him do that work. And it, it is a miracle. You know, I, I, I am amazed at what God can do through just, you know, somebody who can't speak very well. Somebody who has no natural gifting of talking or communicating or small talk, small talk or public speaking. And Moses himself, I, I have a stutter, you know, I, I can't speak well. We don't know what was wrong with Moses, but he's, he had a, a talking problem. And that was who God chose to be his mouthpiece to Pharaoh? Man, God uses our weaknesses to magnify his strength. And then finally we come to verses 13 and 14. These verses bring comfort and more clarity about what Jesus had just said. And these are comforting words to the disciples because he's not going to be with them any longer. And, and they feel lost, right? Without their teacher present that they've been with for three years, they feel totally inadequate for whatever is coming. They're going to come completely unknown. And so Jesus tells that, tells that whenever... Um, they are going to go out and they're going to carry the light of the gospel message. He's trying to give them words of comfort. And he says this in John chapter 14, John 14, verse 13. He says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So Jesus gives them this assurance. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You know, we believe that God works through the prayers of his people. We don't just preach the gospel, but we pray for the Spirit to soften hearts and make people ready to receive the message. And we pray for the Spirit to do the work in a person's life, which is a work that only God can do. And he says, if you pray... If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. You know, when we pray a lot of times as Christians, we end by saying, in Jesus' name, amen. And if you've never thought about it, there's a reason for it. It's not because we feel like God won't hear our prayers. It's not because, you know, that's how you, you ought to pray. There's no right or wrong way to pray. But I tell you, I've, we've been learning a lot through the book of Praying Life and our discussions um, from Scripture on Monday nights. And... One of the things that we learn is that, or actually there's a book called Praying Backwards by H.B. Charles, uh, and he says, like, it's called Praying Backwards because you start, the foundation of your prayers is you're going to the Father in Jesus' name. So that's why we pray in Jesus' name. We pray in Jesus' name because that is how we know that God is going to hear our prayers. He's going to hear our prayers because we can come to the throne of grace with confidence when we come in the name of Jesus. And a person's name in the ancient world represented what that person was like. So we're not coming for selfish reasons, but we come so that Jesus, in his name, that he will glorify his name. One of the elders of the churches I used to serve at would always say, for Jesus' sake, amen. Like we are praying that Jesus will be glorified in our prayers. We're praying all these things so that Jesus will be magnified. And I think that's part of what it means to pray in Jesus' name. 1 John 5.15 says, And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. So praying in Jesus' name shows that 
um, effective prayer is what we're asking that Jesus would be delighted in our prayers. You know, um, praying is about also praying in accordance with his will. Look what he says here. He says that, um, ask me anything in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So when we go, we're asking to pray according to God's will. We're asking for his will to be done, for his kingdom to come. So when we pray, the Bible teaches us that we pray in faith, that we pray with patience, that we pray in obedience, and that we pray in submission to God's greater wisdom. Prayer is all about having a relationship with God. It's not about doing a formula so you can get the things that you want, but it's about you coming to the Father and submitting your will to him, asking for his will to be done, his kingdom to come, and for his name to be glorified. And then praying in Jesus' name also shows the generosity of what Jesus is telling us, which I think this is also very encouraging for us today, just as I think it was encouraging to the disciples. And I want to share this illustration that um, came from the book that I just talked about. In our group on Monday, I said, I want to share this coming up here because this is just such a great story. I read this like years ago, and it's always in my mind. And sometimes when I struggle in my prayer life, I think about this little story that the author of this book came up with. He said, Imagine that your prayer is a poorly dressed beggar, reeking of alcohol and body odor, stumbling toward the palace of the great king. You have become your prayer. As you shuffle toward the barred gate, the guards stiffen. Your smell has preceded you. You stammer out a message for the great king. I want to see the king. Your words are barely intelligible, but you whisper one final word. Jesus, I come in the name of Jesus. At the name of Jesus, as if by magic, the palace comes alive. The guards snap to attention, bowing low in front of you. Lights come on and the door flies open. You are ushered into the palace and down a long hallway into the throne room of the great king who comes running to you and wraps you in his arms. The name of Jesus gives my prayers royal access. And they get through. Jesus isn't just the savior of my soul. He's the savior of my prayers. And so when we pray in Jesus' name, it's not because we think we have all of our prayers perfect, saying all the right perfect words, but praying in Jesus' name is one more gift that God gives us in his grace. So to wrap up here, I want, to, I want you to hear these words from Jesus as an encouragement for your life today. The disciples were at a low point, and they had every reason to be discouraged with what Jesus has just told them. But God wants us to be encouraged because if we are united to Christ, we have, powerful, we have access to a powerful God. And if we are in Christ, then we will do works, even greater works, so that the name of Jesus will be lifted up and so that God will be glorified.